who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Welcome, everyone, to the second of the three special live ETL episodes STVP is presenting this summer before we kick off the fall quarter in late September. I'm Rita Katila, professor in Stanford's Management Science and Engineering Department and Research Director of STVP. Today, I'm excited to be hosting a conversation with John Zieger. John is a co-founder and the executive director of a nonprofit called Responsible Innovation Labs. We are doing much research and teaching on responsible innovation at Stanford, and when I heard that John is heading Responsible Innovation Labs, I thought we need to find out more. So what Responsible Innovation Labs does, they are working to create tools and ethics-based frameworks to help technology-based startups scale in responsible ways. Before Responsible Innovation Labs, John was the general counsel of Stripe where he built and oversaw the company's legal, public policy, and corporate security functions and helped Stripe scale from a very small startup to one of the largest fintech companies in the world. Before Stripe, John spent almost a decade at Microsoft, where he oversaw the legal functions for Microsoft search, advertising, and other online properties. Welcome, John, to ETL. How's your day so far? It's good, Rita. Thanks so much. It's really good to be here with you. Thanks for joining us. So first off, um, since Responsible Innovation Labs is such a new organization, we wanted to ask you to spend just a few minutes talking about how the organization got started and the problem that your nonprofit is trying to solve. So floor is yours for a few minutes, John. Super, um, so th thanks, for, thanks for that. And, uh, and again, thanks for having me here. Uh, to talk about it. And it, you're right, it is a little hard to find information. I'm going to share a quick deck, which we'll just kind of touch on. Let's see. So um, Responsible Innovation Labs. Um, let me start with, uh, Reed, as you say, a little bit of the origin story here. And I won't kind of go through all of the, the numbers and, and uh, details on the slide, but maybe start, back, start with a little bit of story um, or some context. So when I left Stripe in uh, the beginning of 2020, uh, I started a period after taking a little bit of time off, uh, started a series of discussions with uh, former colleagues, friends, people that I had known and worked with in the industry uh, around a kind of shared thesis that a number of us were kind of coming to. And it, it sort of goes um, like this. Um, on the one hand, I think I and, the, and my kind of collaborators in these discussions were all people who had benefited enormously from the technology industry and were really believers in uh, the power of ambitious technology companies to change the world for the good. We think that the biggest problems that society faces, whether that is uh, climate change or the availability of high quality education or healthcare or you, you name the issue, um, innovation and the, innovate, the kind of innovation driven by technology, ambitious technology companies uh, will be essential to, to, to getting good outcomes for society. It's not the only thing, but it's a critical part of that. And so in that sense, 
we're you know great believers in the technology industry. Uh, it, it is indeed shaping uh, the world that we live in. Um, by the same token, I think we all looked at where we were at the beginning of 2020, and, and certainly I think not much has changed uh, for the better. And the trend of a, of a technology industry that kind of uh, you know moved fast and broke things, um, as as uh, uh, you know to, to kind of paraphrase, um, was really quite troubling, right? We it turns out we moved very fast and we broke some things that it, it are, are are very hard to fix. Um, and um, and when you take those two things, the power of of, of innovation and the risks uh, attendant to that innovation and the unintended consequences produced by that, um, it, it, it really creates a situation that, that calls out for us uh, as an industry, I think, to think very hard about, right? And so that's, the, that's sort of what motivated, uh, you know, in the, in the first instance, the kind of motivating spirit behind this, a believer that we need, we need more innovation, we need more good innovation, uh, we need fewer unintended consequences of that innovation. And whether you think about technology from the perspective of economic growth, um, where it is the principal driver of growth in the economy, both in the US and in many other places around the world, or whether you think about it as this force shaping our lives, right? Um, how we interact with others, uh, the kinds of work that we do or don't do, and so on and so forth, right? Um, it is essential that we get it right in really fundamental ways. And so for us, I mean, you know, and we'll, get, we'll, we'll talk more about this in the context of the discussion, but um, you know, there's a way in which you can think about these problems in a very sort of economic or almost technocratic way, right? It's, it's about kind of getting the growth right. It's about um, you know, preserving sort of shareholder values. A lot of ways that, that we get very kind of there's a, a sort of bloodlessness in some ways about the way that we we sometimes talk about this. But I think the, the thing that I kind of want to communicate and, and that motivates us is there's a real kind of moral force to this work, right? There is a sense that like um, who we are as a society and what our world will look like over time um, is going to be driven by this kind of work, right? Getting uh, technology that is responsible, innovation that is in the interests of society. And so that's kind of where we're 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 coming from uh, in this. So that sort of lead it, led us to okay, well, what's a hot great fine? You know, we sort of share that point of view. But then, what what's a high leverage way um, to 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 drive the kind of impact to sort of bend the curve um, toward innovation that is more responsible over time? And our thesis, kind of going in, was okay, well, early stage technology companies are, are sort of where it's at, right? Well, it's, if we can get to early stage companies and kind of uh, help them in a variety of ways, and let's talk about some of the ways that we might do that, um, that we would get better outcomes over time. And, and that proved to be true, uh, but also challenging. And we'll talk about some of those challenges as we, as we, as we, as we kind of get in uh, to this. Um, uh, without going into tremendous detail, I think one of the things that became apparent to us was there are already forces pushing technology companies to be somewhat responsible, or at least, let's say, to appear somewhat responsible, because there is sometimes both are true or, or one or the other is true. Um, these are some of them. I won't kind of go through all. There's employee pressure, which is probably for many 
uh, you know, U.S. Uh, West Coast, U.S. based technology companies is maybe the most salient. Right. There's a lot of employee activism and pressure. But there are others. You know, people are familiar with the, the ESG movement and impact investing. Um, it, that's an increasingly important part of pushing not just technology companies, but really all corporate uh, actors toward a, a more, uh, certainly in the public markets, toward a more responsible uh, path. But I think for all of these sources of pressure, um, because they're they're very ill-suited to technology companies, they, they, they have not generally contemplated the issues associated with innovation-driven businesses, um, and um, particularly for private technology companies, because there is so little transparency, these sources of pressure don't ladder up to really sustained uh, change and improvement over time. They tend to be one-off interactions between whether it's the investor or the employee group um, that sort of melt away uh, and, and don't really amount to a time. So our view was, given that there is that set of diffuse pressures, there's an opportunity to really drive toward um, more, uh, uh, you know, those things pulling in the same direction, sort of harness that diffuse energy and get it pulling in the same direction. And, you know, as you said, uh, when you were introducing Rita, the, the first thing there and the core of what we're focused on is actionable tools, information, and frameworks that are operator-oriented, that really distill the very best of what is happening in the industry, that take in um, voices from the right kind of stakeholders outside of industry, people who are knowledgeable about these domains, and begin to create things that companies can implement that help them be both more responsible and in many cases, more efficient and more focused. Um, so that's, uh, that's sort of our thing. One, eventually we hope to turn those into real standards and to get those standards uh, implemented uh, as part of the investment process for venture capital firms and other investors and the acquisition process for acquirers. And through that, to create transparency that can drive a path for kind of continuous improvement in standards. So we, um, we broadly talk about four pillars of, of responsibility. Um, I think this is, yeah, this is one cut on a, a, a lot of different ways that you could talk or think about this. I won't go through all the text here just to say, you know, we, we, one is this sort of bucket of privacy, safety, and security. It's really this idea of respecting user autonomy and building companies that think about the user as an autonomous actor whose who's, who's data and person and decisions have kind of independent value and dignity and building kind of governance and systems that are reflective of that, right? So that's, that's kind of one. The second is this idea of openness and diversity. And as we've gone through our discussions, I think one of the things that's become clear is this is in many ways the foundational thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll probably talk more about it in the course of the conversation, but um, who is at the table? Uh, who, who gets to make decisions um, you know, at every level of an organization about what matters, what problems have significance, what don't? Um, those, all, all of that is, is essential, not just to building a diverse organization, but to building an organization that thinks about the interests of society at large. And so that's, a, that's an important topic of building an open and diverse uh, company. 
And then economic opportunity inclusion is in many ways is sort of the, the, the other side of the same coin. And it's really about the question of, as we innovate, as we build technology products, um, the impacts of those, who is disrupted and who is not, whose jobs are lost, uh, and, you know, and, and, who's, and who's are gained, um, how, uh, are, are what problems we choose to solve, um, all of that is, is uh, really in this bucket of economic opportunity and inclusion. How do we build an industry that pulls people up and along uh, rather than one that leaves them behind and, and uh, pulls all the chips over to one side of the table? And the last is, you know, is, is straightforward is environment and sustainability. The biggest crisis, I think, facing humanity at the moment, in many ways, it, it remains uh, global climate change. Uh, and um, it's one that um, the technology industry has uh, a unique opportunity to contribute to solutions uh, to and uh, potentially also to, to furthering. So those are, those are for us uh, kind of the, the four pillars that we're, we're quite focused on. Our process here, and I'll, I'll sort of wrap up with this, we, we, you know, we very much believe that it's not for us to come down from the mountain with the tablets and say, this is what good looks like, right? This is, this is what responsible is. We're smart folks, um, trust us, right? We, we believe that it has to be grounded in practice. Um, it has to be grounded in what people are really doing, um, but really finding the very best. One of the things that always impressed me about Patrick Collison as a founder when I was uh, at Stripe for many years was when we would have hard problems, whether those were business challenges or, or you know, sort of some of the issues we're talking about or others, one of the things he would do is go and have discussions with the very best people he could find in the world. And they might be people that we, they might be other founders, they might be authors, they might be academics, they might be uh, uh, you know, uh, government leaders. Um, and sort of distill that, kind of marinate in all of that wisdom, distill it down, and then say, okay, I think this is what we should do from that, right? I think this is this is this is reflective of the very best I can I can come up with, plus how we think about it, and then let's do that. We're trying to, in some sense, recreate that process. The the first product that we're focused on is what we call platform governance, and we'll maybe explain a little bit more in the conversation as to why we ended up landing on that product. But it's really the set of of questions around under what circumstances can, can uh, users use a product? When do you prevent them from using it? How do, how do you govern that set of interactions? Um, and that obviously became enormously salient uh, on January 6th. It, it has been for certain kinds of companies for a very long time. Our, our process has been gathering facts from people uh, having interviews with founders, this 100 number is more, is more broadly, it's not only on platform governance, that's a broad set of conversations we've had with founders on a lot of topics. Um, interviewing thought leaders um, and kind of doing uh, literature reviews and kind of trying to distill all of that down um, to the core of a framework that we can build uh, and use that is a useful tool um, for companies that we can then pilot and gain uh, uh, feedback from from companies on. So that's sort of it. This is the this is sort of the team right now. We are we are growing. We also have a great big intern class this summer, which was awesome. So if any of you or your uh, uh, students or academics, if you have folks that are interested in internships on these topics, um, we will we will continue to do that. So that's also uh, an opportunity that I thought I'd socialize. But that's that, a very exciting and a very big project. So to get us started, talk a little bit about why responsible innovations. So, so kind of what, why you joined this effort yourself? 
maybe there was something in your personal, professional experience. You mentioned the Stripe uh, founder inspirations or something else that motivated you to focus on, on these very big and important issues. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Rita. So I, mean, I, I think a, f- a few things, a lot of these issues, um, whether it's privacy issues, uh, uh, DNI sets of issues, uh, platform governance issues, were ones that I had spent a lot of time on in my career, both at Microsoft uh, and at Stripe. Uh, and so for that reason, they were, they were, you know, I think for all of them, there was a set of, they were a way in which they were kind of the burr, the burr in the saddle that, you know, you kind of, you know, you just need to keep working it. It's just not quite there yet. Um, uh, so there's certainly some aspect uh, of, of these feeling like unsolved problems that I had a, a, an interest in seeing more work done and participating more in, in the work. You're right, though, that the, the Stripe experience was um, super informative for me. Um, in the sense that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of give this anecdote. One of the things I always loved about working at Stripe, and I think one of the, the things that has set it apart and it's reflective of both its um, scale and sort of significance as a company, um, and, you know, in some ways it's kind of value and the maturity that's, that's sort of reflective of, of, of that, has been the founders, you know, John and Patrick are really extraordinary founders in a lot of ways, but, but one of the ways is, this sense that they were building from day one a long-term sustainable business, right? This was not a business we were trying to just grow, right? It was a business that we expected to be working on and certainly they expected to be working on for decades. Um, And that kind of long-term and sustainable mindset really informed everything we did. And one example of that that I, you know, I was sort of responsible for driving was um, on the regulatory side, right? Stripe is a, is in a heavily regulated business. It moves massive amounts of other people's money around the world. Um, it, you know, more or less the most heavily regulated business uh, category uh, that we have. Um, and even before we were regulated, very early in the life of that business, one of the things that I did, we were a two-year-old company um, in the United States, which was our principal market at the time. Uh, we uh, you know, knew we would eventually need a certain kind of license, what's called the money transmission license. Um, and so we went to regulators, we should, they have a conference, the Money Transmission Regulators Association, they have a conference every year. And we went to their conference, and we booked a little hospitality suite, and we said, we're from this little company, Stripe, we invited them all to come in, in, in little blogs or from this company. And here's what we do. Here's how we do it. Here's who we are. Um, and as we grow, you may hear more about us. You know, here's how to get in touch with us, right? And that that sense um, of engagement with and respect for regulators and their role, um, which 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 you know you'll remember, sort of this is this is back in 2014 when the you know the biggest show in town was Uber, which was a very different view of regulators, right? It was it was sort of move fast established presence on the ground and they're different businesses. So I don't want to, I don't want to overdraw the parallels, but um, I think that kind of engaged and, and sustainable and long-term model was one that we saw work well from a business perspective, but also I think just fundamentally worked better from a kind of societal perspective. We were able to do things um, that were reflective of the intention of regulators um, in ways that it would have been very hard if we had sort of, uh, you know, kind of hid and made them kind of run to catch up to us. So 
that, that that's that's sort of one example. I'll, get, I'll give you one more in a little bit of a different vein, and then and then um, move on to your to your next if you if you if you have others. But um, you know, uh, when I was still at Microsoft, well, actually, before I get, I'll preface and say, I, I think there's a way in which um, incentives and the creation of incentives you know, sort of takes on this momentum, right? Early in the life of a company, there's a lot of fluidity. You can change, you know, what, what are the principal business drivers, et cetera. Um, but those ossify over time, you begin to build businesses around them, you make certain representations to your investors, whether that's in the private or public markets. And so those, those uh, incentives um, begin to drive the yeah, there's a period in which you're driving the incentives and then there's a time in which they drive you, right? And um, one of the things I have often thought is that there were ways in which um, the companies that are very responsible for our present information e ecosystem could have changed the outcome, right? There was a time very early in the life, and I'll use Facebook, but it's certainly not the only example, when that company um, could have... Um, chosen not to kind of plant its flag on the engagement-driven, social graph engagement-driven business model and done something else. Um, and, I, and, and an example I'll give you here is that I was at a conference that the AP hosted, uh, the Associated Press hosted in uh, 2008 or maybe it was early 2009. Um, and it was around the question of algorithmic news um, and uh, actually the AP's focus, if folks who were, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, in the industry or thinking about it back then would remember that it was Google News that was a big issue. They were really focused on Google News. Um, and one of the issues that was coming up at this conference was sort of what's the future of news and, and sort of these um, algorithmically generated, uh, uh, you know, uh, news sites. But one of the issues that was, co was coming up from academics in particular was filter bubbles and the ways in which Filter bubbles would create, um, you know, this sort of uh, cabining off of people into into distinct information spheres, and it was talked about um, from people from Google and, and Facebook and others. And the and the and the and the thinking at the time was, well, maybe maybe it's an issue, but people don't get most of their news from um, the internet, and so they get it <laughs> they get it from other places. They get it from the newspaper. They get it from TV or um, or other places, and so it's really not a thing. Um, it's really not a thing to worry about. And I've often thought, you know, back to your question of why, why I'm doing this and why, why focus on this particular effort. I have often thought that there was a time, that was a moment in which somebody could have stood up and said, yeah, we're aware that there's a possible downside here. There's, a, there's an externality that is real, that serious people are thinking about. We don't agree. We maybe don't agree that it's gonna be that big of a problem. But let's do what we in Silicon Valley and the tech industry do really well. Let's put a metric on it. Let's measure it. Let's watch for it, and let's manage it, right? And um, and then you, if, in my hypo, you know, my counterfactual that may or may, you know, is, of course, we'll, we'll never know. Um, maybe you end up in a world where the current fracturing of the information space would have been, if not avoided, at least much more aggressively managed much earlier, um, I think to the manifest benefit of the world. So anyway, that's my, those are some some reasons. I mean, there's sort of, sort of lots of them, but those are, those are a couple of, of, of thoughts on that score. Great, that's great. 
I want to come back to the news and platforms and regulation a little bit later, but if I may, can I step back a little bit and let's talk about responsible innovation labs mm. and how you build a nonprofit like that. So we have Steve Blank uh, talking about customer discovery process. And I was wondering how you validate a need for this type of an organization. And you mentioned a few interviews you did or many interviews, in mm -hmm. fact. Um, talk more about the process of building a non-profit non like that. How long does yeah. it take? You know, what kinds of stakeholders do you involve, et cetera? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And for me, very much, um, you know, it's my first time building a nonprofit. So um, I'm guessing there are probably other folks on this call who have uh, have lots of great experience that I could learn from. But I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what our, our journey has been. You know, so so one of our key partners on this, you, you may have seen his picture on the uh, on the slides, is Hamant Taneja, who's the managing director of General Catalyst, uh, which has been very helpful. They've been a great partner of ours because I think the partners there really care about this. It's a big it's a big part of how they are working to build that firm, um, and and you know even their their investment thesis, but. One of the benefits of that, of having them as a partner, is they've been great at, at putting us in touch with their portfolio companies. And, uh, you know, and so, so some of this, I think if you were just starting from, from uh, you know, ground zero and kind of knocking on people's doors or sending cold emails, that would have been a little tougher. We, we um, because we had that connection, uh, you know, we, we've been able to spend a lot of time with founders at a really high quality, you know, of, of, of portfolio companies at one of the, the highest quality VC firms, you know, around. That's been great for us because it's given us a lot of access. And so what we've done is sit down with people, explain a little bit of our thesis, um, ask them questions around what matters to them, how they make, what are the issues that they're facing around. And it tends to be a little, those tend to be a little bit guided discussions in the sense that, you know, there are some companies who are very AI focused or some companies are very healthcare focused and so on. Um, you do find that there's a set of commonalities across uh, companies. So diversity is an issue for just about every company. Um, and it's often the very top of mind issue. But so we would have a series of discussions uh, with companies to, to sort of discover where they, where they had issues, um, you know, where they saw opportunities for us. Uh, if we had materials like this, would that be helpful to you? You know, it was a little bit of that. Um, uh, kind of discussion. And we did a lot of those um, with founders. And those were, I think, in many ways, uh, the most informative, um, but with lots of other folks as well, a lot with investors. We've had some, you know, we can sort of tell you a little bit about some of the various wild hairs we chased down. What if we did this? And, you know, what if we did, we thought, well, for a while, we could get the LP community that that would be the way, you know, we would sort of leverage the LPs to kind of, you know, uh, uh, lever the VCs and force have the VCs force. That turned out for a variety of reasons not to be super fruitful, but I, I mean, I'm happy to, to, to say more about that if it's if it's of interest. But, um, but but that but so that 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 interview process mostly with founders at the core was the, was the the main driver of a lot of what we did. I think what what we got out of that was um, a real clear sense that um, there was a need, and we've come to talk about it a lot as like a last mile problem, right? There's a way in which um, you know, you, others, people who work around this space know that there's a lot of really good thinking that's happening, right, in, in NGOs, in academia, in, in various groups of the industry. Um, not that much is making it 
um, to the founders who are the people making the decisions. A lot, there's a lot of dropout uh, there. And so one of the things that we're, we, we, you know, that, we, that became really clear to us is there's some stuff that we need to invent, but a lot of this is just like finding the best stuff and getting it to people, right? Getting it to, a, to people in a way that they can consume. So that 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 was a, a, a kind of an interesting uh, sort of validating uh, thing. Uh, I, I'd say, I mean, broadly, that's kind of been our discovery process. Um, we spend a lot of time talking to other NGOs in the space, other other kind of nonprofits um, working around this. I think through that became convinced that while there were people working on important contiguous aspects of the problem, there was really nobody attacking it from this sort of operator-oriented tools, frameworks, you know, kind of practical utility um, uh, uh, perspective, or at least not in the way we we are thinking about it. And so that also kind of gave us some sense that there's really a thing there. There's a real space to fill. That's great. And and talk a little bit more about why you pivoted from these early. You said earlier. You yeah. focused on early stage companies, uh, but then later you realized maybe it's these later stage startups yeah. that are in most need of your of your tools and programs. Talk talk a little bit about that change and pivot. What sure. Happened? Yeah. No. It's a good, it's a it's a it's a good point. And yeah. So so what we started with was uh, as you say it was sort of the sense that and the thesis being like okay it's early stage companies and i and i do believe you know i, I continue to believe that there is this uh, real way in which the earlier you get to companies the more impactful you are likely to be able to to be i think that's broadly true the problem that that frankly should have as people who've worked in and around startups for a long time should have been apparent but you know um uh, maybe optimism, uh, uh, you know, was, was, was better than our kind of uh, knowledge, but um, w- was the early stage companies, you know, as, as many of the folks here will know, are, are in a mode where almost everything is an existential issue, right? Am I going to get customers? Am I going to be able to grow the team? Am I going to be able to raise capital to do those other things? Um, you know, will I get product market fit and so on? And every one of those is a sort of ticking clock with a kind of immediacy um, that is salient, right? That wakes the founder up in early, you know, very early in the, in the morning to, to, to get out and go do those things. And so, you know, I, we had a number of founders express a thought in various ways, but very similar sentiment, which is, look, I care a lot about this. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things you will often have is founders who are multiple time founders. They, they have a little bit of perspective on this. They care a lot. They care a lot about it. They even have a little bit, you know, they, they're not, you know, the, the, the company is, it's their whole reputation is not on this company, but so they, so they, they really care uh, about it. But what they will say is some version of, if it doesn't help me grow faster, if it doesn't help me um, move more quickly, I don't really have a lot of time for it. Like mm-hmm. I will do it. I'll, I'll do a little and like, I'll do the things that are closest. And so this is one of the reasons why diversity often ends up being um, the issue that sort of, you know, it sort of pops its, its head up as, as, as one that early stage founders will engage on is because it's so salient for them. And it, it, it is kind of critical path for growing the team. They know if they grow the company to uh, off kilter and sort of, 
in, in a non-diverse way, that it will hurt them in significant ways. And so they do want to solve that problem. But for many of the other kinds of problems, whether it's thinking about ethical AI and how they're going to you know, build systems that, that protect uh, you know, their users around that, whether it's privacy or security or sustainability, any of those things, they're much more um, abstract and they, they will get the marginal time that those companies have or those founders have. And remind, you know, as, as, as you know, for early stage companies, it's very often the founder or one of the, a few co-founders, they're doing this work. They're, they're, they're hiring, they're raising money, they're selling. And then the other hat is thinking you know, about how to build an ethical company. And that will often, you know, without any ill intent, get sort of short shrift. You know, and the, that's the reason that matters, and I'll sort of pivot to the larger companies uh, uh, question here is one of the things that, you know, folks will know if you thought much about startups, certainly it was, a, for me, a core learning from Stripe is one of the most valuable things you can have as a startup company of any kind, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit, is users who will give you feedback, who will use your product and give you feedback on it. Right. That's how you. That's how you iterate quickly. That's how you uh, improve, and ultimately how you serve a real need for a broad set of customers who um, find you know value in what you do. And so for us, um, finding a set of users who could be wouldn't just care in an abstract way, but actually had the the time and resources um, to be able to engage with us was was essential. And what we found is that somewhat later stage companies, anywhere from let's say two to three years pre-IPO through early stage public companies were often the, a better partner for us for a couple of reasons. Um, they cleared a lot of those existential hurdles, right? Almost by definition, if you're starting to think about path to liquidity, it's likely because you've cleared uh, product market fit. You've got you know, the sort of the momentum of the company um, doesn't just depend on the founders. Um, and so you have a little bit of space to think about things that feel less totally critical path, one. Um, two, you probably have along with that people um, who are responsible for those functions. You have a head of people, you have a, you have a general counsel, you have um, you know, other uh, you know, C-suite uh, folks who have as a part of their mandate, thinking about aspects of this. And so you start to have a partner that you're able to kind of work with there. And sometimes uh, people who are, who are even more specialized on aspects of this, like diversity, a chief diversity officer. Um, so that's for us, that's great because those people can really be engaged counterparts. They bring some amount of subject matter knowledge and it's gonna be a very kind of high bandwidth uh, uh, you know, engagement. And the last is that they often, you know, because of trends in the public markets and, and the expectations of investors and other things, those companies that are looking to the public markets or, or and beyond kind of need to have an answer on many of these things. Not all of them, and not not to the same degree on all of them. But they they're going to have something they need to say to people about later, right? What what do we do about diversity? Well, we need to have some story. I don't know what it's going to be, but we're going to need to have. A, we we will not simply be able to just kind of you know, um, uh, you know, uh, hide behind the shutters. We're going to have to talk to people about these things. And so that combination of people, you know, space, people, and a kind of internally driven motivation, right? This is the thing we know we need to do, makes them very good customers for us. Our hope remains that we can use those folks as our kind of, um, you know, kind of inner ring to help us build these products, but be able to kind of move um, the frameworks and tools 
uh, sort of slide them down and ultimately potentially even slide them up a little bit as kind of in some ways all companies become kind of innovation companies and aspects of this will apply to the largest companies. But but for now, that's sort of our that's where we're sort of starting and then hoping to kind of move around from there. Great. So I want to shift gears a little bit and ask about your initial focus on platform governance. So um, I want, I was curious why you thought that platform governance is the right place to start. And I, I guess what is platform governance and why should we be worried about it? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And I think it's, you know, it's sort of... Uh, maybe reflective of the prior answer, in, at least in the first instance, in the sense that it's kind of opportunistic, um, right? This for us was um, a place where we had a set of motivated users who really understood that they need help. And I'll, you know, I'll say as someone who has been responsible for, well, actually I'll, I'll answer your direct question, which is what is platform governance or at least how do we conceive of platform governance? Platform governance is the set of um, uh, decisions one makes around who can use a platform, under what circumstances, when will they be deprived of the ability to use it, um, under what, you know, with what sort of process will they be uh, deprived of the ability to use it, and so on, right? Um, uh, you can certainly cast it more broadly. I think there are broader aspects of it. There's, you know, questions around that, that touch on privacy and, and, and data usage and, and other things. But the core of it for us has been this closer to what you might call ethical use or uh, acceptable use, right? It's, who, it's really this question of who can use a platform and under what circumstances. And that came to, you know, that's been an issue obviously for a long time for um, the information platforms, for the social media companies. Um, but what, what, uh, you know, particularly over the last few years, and especially after the January 6th Capitol, call it an insurrection, I don't know what we're calling it these days, but anyway, Capitol thing um, that happened, um, is a bunch of companies that were well outside of the narrative on that question, found themselves right in the middle of it, right? And so you have Amazon Web Service, uh, you know, a, 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 a web services, uh, as, as low level of an infrastructure provider as you are going to have, right? All the way pretty much to the bare metal of the internet, except for, you know, the telcos, right? Um, who have a different kind of statutory uh, uh, framework that applies to them. Um, you know, making decision to offboard another platform, right? Parler and, and a set of other users as well. Um, and effectively kick them off of the internet, right? You have, you have, Obviously, you have Twitter deciding independently that the President of the United States can no longer speak um, on, on its platform, and 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 so on. And and without making any judgments about whether any of those decisions were the right decisions or wrong decisions, what 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 happened was a bunch of companies realized they had really they had sort of accept, acceptable use or similar kinds of policies, which often amounted to a sentence or two in terms of service. But those were effectively, you know, what, what we lawyers will call holding statements, right? They were not, they were not, they were not often, they were not very well thought out. They will, they were, we will get back to this um, at some point in the future, right? And, and what has happened after, uh, after January is, oh, I think a wide swath of companies have realized we really need to think much harder about this um, and build um, policies, frameworks, and internal processes um, that are much 
better calibrated to deal with this set of issues. And so that's 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 kind of why, and we had a number of those folks reach out to us, partly because this is an area that I have spent a lot of time on in my career and one where I talked to a lot of my general counsel colleagues and, and about when they understood kind of the, the mission that we were embarked on, you know, the discussion was, well, hey, this would be a great place. If you could help us, this would be a great place to do it. And so that's that's sort of, so that's why I say it's a little opportunistic. Um, I think I think if we had, in November of last year, it was not the area where we were going to start. There were some other areas, but this one kind of rose rose to the fore. And, and very topical. So, so as I think about this, um, and, and how do you think about and how does Responsible Innovation Labs think about regulation in this context? So the two options we could go with sort of government regulation or we would go, we could go with self-regulation by the companies themselves to try to tackle, you know, platform governance issues, power of digital platforms, it, all of these yeah. public concerns about platforms. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your take on this? I mean, I, uh, my take, and I, you know, I, I both, uh, mo mostly this is you're getting, uh, you're getting me, John Seeger, as opposed to uh, uh, a reflective of any um, particular uh, of our, you know, users or, or anyone else, but, uh, but I'll kind of give you the sense, both some of the senses that I've gotten from talking to others and my view on it. I, look, I think most companies would be very happy to have regulation in this space. It's not true of every company, um, but I think most companies would be very happy to see clear and fairly prescriptive regulation that makes their judgment burden lighter. Because one of the things that, you know, the, the problems that we find right now is that the amount of judgment that is applied to these problems and the kind of unbounded state of the problem space, right, um, means that they're very risky. They have a lot of brand risk. They have a lot of employee risk. They have a lot of risk for companies in all dimensions, right? You, you know, you look at, you know, any of the, the ones that have been very public, there's really, a, it's a complete no-win situation, right? It's, 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 it's lots of risks in both directions. You're balanced on a knife edge, trying to make decisions in a principled way, um, you know, sort of dragons on all sides. And, um, you know, the, the, the lack of constraint makes both, enhances that risk, results in um, a great deal of inefficiency. So a lot of internal churn on these things. And then maybe worst of all, because it undermines confidence in the companies and creates a kind of cynicism from other actors is a, a sort of flip-flopping where decisions, you can go from a decision that is sort of this on, on you know, today and then that tomorrow and very little change in the facts. And you're sort of wondering, well, what? You, and so, you know, I, I, I think if companies could get regulation that was very clear and prescriptive and, and alleviated a lot of that judgment, I think they would take it. Um, many of them would take it. Not all. Um, I, they're, 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 I don't want to, uh, you know, paint with too broad of a brush, but many of the companies who don't view information services in particular as core to their mission would absolutely just take it. Um, the, the problem, and, I, I, you know, depending on your perspective problem, is it's very unlikely that that's going to happen, right? What we're going to get, if we get regulation, is going to be some sort of broad, you know, requirement to do some kind of diligence um, that will create additional legal risk and liability, but will, it's very unlikely to alleviate the kind of judgment burden and the inefficiency burden. And so for those reasons, I think the, the, the core of this is going to have to come from industry. 
Um, and there's a role for regulation. I think there will be, I think over time there will be, there will be uh, some amount of regulation, but I don't think that regulation is going to solve the problem that is most acute for these companies. Excellent. Um, we have only a few minutes left. So I want to move us to the last segment, uh, which is sort of forward looking, thinking about what success might look like. You've started a new organization. This is the first year. So if we sort of step back and think about ethically healthy 21st century technology ecosystem, what's your vision? What would success yeah. like look like there? Yeah, really, it's a couple of things. I mean, I, I think, so one, I guess I'll just say generally, I think one of the important things to kind of think through here is that, um, you know, in many ways, I'd say an ethically healthy technology ecosystem looks like an ethically healthy society, right? It looks like the innovation ecosystem addressing the biggest problems that society has um, and being really thoughtful about not exacerbating the ones um, that it has that it has helped to drive, like income inequality and these kinds of things. But with that as kind of a maybe too broad brush uh, statement, I think for us, you know, we will, we will uh, you know, sort of evaluate ourselves based on the number of companies that are using our framework to make decisions. We want to see a lot of companies using our frameworks. And I mean, we're not proprietary about them. If there are other great frameworks, that's, that's great too. But we think our frameworks will ultimately be good and useful and, and reflective of a high standard of behavior. And so that's one. We want to see a lot of companies using them. Two, and maybe more importantly, we want to see capital allocators, venture capital firms, private equity, others, using our standards as criteria for investment. We think that at the end of the day, the, the gasoline in the, in the engine of America's innovation economy, the world's innovation economy to a substantial degree is venture capital. Um, and so if we can get those firms to be thoughtful about, um, as they are in many cases already, right? They're very thoughtful about the, um, you know, they have, they have visions about what the, technology state of the world, you know, whether it's investment in alternative energies or, or AI or other, they have a view about what the, what the technology state of the world they want to see, uh, you know, come into existence is going to be. We need them to also have a view about what the responsibility state of the world is going to be and to um, use that as a gate for their investment decisions. I think those are probably the things that are most important to us. There are probably others as well, but that, that's how we'll evaluate our success. I want to end up by the two audience questions. The first one is, we have a lot of students, educators in the audience. What can students specifically do as they are becoming tomorrow's innovators? Look, I think there's a couple of, of things that are important here. One is um, students will be you know, the kinds of students that are involved in a program like yours, many of the other folks who are attending this are going to be um, some of the most sought after people by these technology companies, right? Um, and they're gonna have a seat at the table as they go into industry um, that will be influential. And I, I, I do think there's a way in which we collectively need to, it's sort of a responsibility of all of us in the technology uh, ecosystem to normalize asking questions about the ethics and responsibility of what it is we do. Um, 
you know, that's not going to be the same for everybody at every level. But I do think there's a way in which it's, it's critical that you, we kind of normalize those questions, right? Um, that we are not merely kind of the platonic rational economic actor, like we're, 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 we're actors in society. Um, and, and so that's kind of the thing I would, I would say is sort of uh, first uh, and foremost. I think both for students and for researchers, students who are in their education career, researchers who are, are doing this over the longer term, there remain, I think, a whole enormous set of questions that are unanswered um, around the intersection between practice and outcomes. So I'll give you an example that we've been thinking a bunch about in the context of diversity. I, I think that um, performance evaluation systems, um, right, which are enormous, are, are the driver of how um, income and wealth to a substantial degree are allocated at technology companies, very, very important. Um, are, are, are a driver of how people progress in those companies, who has power in those companies, are, I think, an area that has been a kind of comparative backwater um, and where there is enormous opportunity. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, we seldom, in my experience, talk really hard about those systems, right? I think there's a ton of opportunity to really figure out what works, what makes people feel valued, included, how do we eliminate bias in those things. There's a lot of superficial stuff. There's very little that I think is, is, is very real and there's very little that's measuring the outcome. So it's an example, but it's, it's one, I think an important one, but it's one of many where I think there's a ton of opportunity to research how practice and outcomes relate to one another on these responsibility issues. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.